Our thought processes are much like just browsing on the internet, following link after link, where you go to something that you have purpose for, you follow that link, oh, that looks interesting, how about that over there? For all you know, you, first, you know, it's just way off where you ever would have thought that you would have been, and our minds do the same thing. And so trying to teach this is difficult because it seems like it's so small. In the face of what we have to accomplish, especially if you're in recovery, it's, it's just this tiny little thing, and my problems are so big. The hole I've dug is so deep. But even if you're not in substance abuse recovery, you're just in life recovery because everybody's recovering from something, right? It's the same thing. This just seems like so much nothing. I remember um, one person I was talking to was just saying, we were talking about mindfulness, and she was saying, oh, I don't have time for this. You know, I got kids. I got a family. I always have three or four things happening at the same time. There's a pot going on over here. I got this going on over here. I got the kids over here. And I don't have time for this. And what I was trying to get across to her is that it doesn't take any more time. You just continue to do what you do, but you do it with mindfulness and presence. But it is such a foreign concept to most of us. And we resist it, or we just think it's completely irrelevant. So a lot of my job then has become trying to get people intrigued enough to at least buy into that there may be a benefit enough to try it, to see what might happen if we actually carved out time to be quiet, to meditate, to prayer, to pray wordlessly, to be mindful throughout the day, to guard our consciousness, to watch it, and see how often we drift off into other places. But part of that building up of some desire is to try to show what it does. And that's difficult because as soon as we talk about it, it changes it, you know, all that weird stuff. But if we can start to see that there is a benefit, there is a possibility, then things can start to change. Last session that we were having last week when we were talking about this, uh, one woman raised her hand who's been with us almost three months now. So she's an old timer as, as it goes either. And she was saying, you know what? And, and she was you know, reacting to the resistance that she was seeing in the room as well. She says, you know what? I thought exactly the same thing that I know you guys are thinking right now. You know, this didn't make any sense. It didn't make any difference. And so there was no point in doing it. But she says, you know, when I got back home again, because she's in her third month of transition, my, my house is constantly crazy. It's constantly noisy. There's kids screaming. The TV's on. Things are going on. People are coming to the door. And she says, it's nuts. And it was driving me crazy. She said, so I started to try to be present, to be mindful. And she says, and it started working. Not only that, I have a four-year-old special needs son, she said. And he acts out in all sorts of ways that are sometimes wildly inappropriate. And she's got to watch him and she's got to be careful and following him around. And, and she felt herself getting completely irritated and just wrung out from trying to get this kid to be where he was supposed to be and doing what he was supposed to do. And at one point, a switch flipped in her as she was sitting with him, she said. And all of a sudden, she just realized, you know, he's four years old. He's special needs. He's exactly where he's supposed to be, doing exactly what he's supposed to be doing for his age and for his condition. He's perfect. I'm the one who's bringing all this stuff to the moment that is making this such an irritating moment. And she stopped herself, and she just kind of eased back, and she just let him be, and she realized the moment was perfectly perfect, and she had a great time with him. Now, 
just warms the teacher's heart like you can't imagine. <laughs> to hear someone. And then she said, you know what? The other thing that she hates doing is commuting on the road. And she was driving, she was stuck in traffic, and she was getting all irritated. And she said she actually heard my voice in her head, which is kind of cool in a creepy sort of way. Um, and I would talk about, you know, you know even, even if you're doing something you don't like to do, like your commute, you're always going to be happier if you're focusing on the thing that you're doing rather than all that stuff in your head. Just feel the steering wheel in your hands. You know, see the landscape sliding past your windows. Feel the air that is coming on you. Be present. And she said, you know, this stuff works. It works. It brought her back to a place. It brought her back to a center. It brought her to a place where she could appreciate her son and have moments with him where she could deal with a chaotic household in ways that she didn't imagine she could ever do before. And then another woman who's also in her third month, she also chimed in and said the same thing, basically, that she was realizing that this thing that seemed like so much nothing, cotton candy, was really bringing a change, a profound change to her life. And people here, you know, that I've been working with and, and that Frank's been working with, we see the changes. They report the changes. It doesn't happen overnight. It's going to be like an aerobic workout that takes some time to start showing some fruit. And if you can push through those first few weeks, first couple of months, and you get out to this place where you see the benefits, then you start to realize there's something going on here that I had no idea would start to happen you know, I remember for myself, I'd be sitting at my desk and working when our 11-year-old was, you know, between five and seven, and he'd run up and want to, daddy, 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 no, 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 and I'd be working. I'm working here, you know? And so I do the kind of thing where I'm sort of watching him out of one ear and one eye, and I'm still trying to type and everything, and, and you know, it was just a miserable thing, and I was finding myself getting irritated. Finally, I realized, what am I doing, you know? He'd come up, daddy, 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 I just push away from the keyboard, turn and face him, take his little face in my hands and let him babble on. It only took 20 or 30 seconds and then he was off <laughs> doing the next thing and then I could turn and do my work. Before I started doing this, I wasn't with him, I wasn't with my work, I was nowhere. This way I'm working, I'm talking to him and then I come back to work. It's so much better. It changes the way that we process. you know, And it's ongoing. We don't just choose it once and then it's there for us. It's something that we have to keep coming back to. Something that we have to value enough to keep practicing. And I just wish that I could, you know, import this. But no one could do it for me, so I don't imagine that. What do you get when you move into those places? What is it that you feel with your four-year-old, with, with, with just a commute? Well, there is a sense of well-being. There's a sense of peace. There's a sense of tranquility. There's a sense of basic okayness that somehow all of this is going to be okay. In that moment, even if you haven't solved the problems that your head is still trying to solve, even if you don't see the light yet at the end of the tunnel, there's that sense. So then is this just about feelings? Is this just about feeling good? Is this about clearing the deck so you can make a better decision in a moment? Is it about improving the nature of your relationships? Is that really what the goal or what the, the end result of a contemplative life really is? Yes and no. I mean, yes it is. There is a, that's, a, that's a byproduct. It's an effect of being in the moment, being really connected to people, to nature, to God's presence, has that effect. But that's really not the purpose. That's not the will of God that we're trying to access as we start to discipline ourselves to live this way. 
You know, when I was a kid growing up Catholic, we had what was called the Baltimore Catechism. I don't know if any of you remember that. And uh, the nun would run up and down the aisle and, and uh, we'd ask us these basic questions from the catechism. We'd have to parrot them back. And I always remember one of them, you know, why are we here? You know, why did God make us? Why are we here? And the answer that we would all say in our little squeaky voices was to glorify God. It's like, okay. Hey, you know what? That's not a bad answer. But as a first grader, I didn't understand what that meant. To glorify God, what does that mean? Run around saying how great he is all the time, praising him, shouting, you know, really great compliments, good job, God. I didn't know what praising, what, what glorify meant. Now I realize that to glorify God is, praise is part of that, but praise is like an effect of just reflecting who God is. To glorify God is to reflect him, to imitate him. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, right? So to reflect God, to imitate God, is to glorify God. And we get a twofer because when we are imitating God, living like God, choosing like God, relating, loving like God, it's the best we're ever going to feel. It's the most connected we're ever going to be. So even if it's just enlightened self-interest for a while, start there. See where this road starts to take you, you know? So, what does it mean to glorify God? It means to imitate him. But I wanted to read you a little passage from Thomas Merton. This is from his book called New Seeds of Contemplation, where he talks about this very thing. And here's what he writes. He says, A tree gives glory to God by being a tree. For in being what God means it to be, it is obeying him. Isn't that a great definition of obeying? To be what God created us to be is obeying him. A tree being what it is, is obeying him. It consents, quote unquote, so to speak, to his creative love. It is expressing an idea which is in God and which is not distinct from the essence of God. And therefore a tree imitates God by being a tree. The more a tree is like itself, the more it's like God. If it tried to be something else which it was never intended to be, it would be less like God and therefore it would give him less glory. No two created beings are exactly alike. And their individuality is no imperfection. Their individuality is no imperfection. A four-year-old special needs child is no imperfection. That's his individuality, his specific circumstance. This particular tree will give glory to God by spreading out its roots in the earth and raising its branches into the air and the light in a way that no other tree before or after it ever did or will do. For me to be a saint, and by saint he means, I'm sure, give God glory, for me to be a saint, to give God glory, means to be myself. Therefore, the problem of sanctity and salvation is in fact the problem of finding out who I am and discovering my true self. True self. As opposed to the old self, the false self, that self that we program out of our childhood, program out of our fear, program out of our need to survive trauma, to find happiness, to move our agenda forward. That self is the false self, the old self. Paul calls him the old man that needs to die. So therefore, this problem of sanctity and salvation is in fact the problem of finding out who I am and discovering my true self. Trees and animals have no problem. 
God makes them what they are without consulting them, and they are perfectly satisfied. With us, it's different. God leaves us free to be whatever we like. We can be ourselves or not, as we please. We are at liberty to be real or to be unreal. We may be true or false. The choice is ours. We may wear now one mask and now another, and never, if we so desire, appear with our own true face. But if we have chosen the way of falsity, we must not be surprised that truth eludes us when we finally come to need it. Giving the glory, giving the glory to God, then, is just being who we were created to be. But who is that? See, there's the rub, as Shakespeare would say. Who is that? How do we find out? Well, the work of all authentic spirituality, of all authentic spiritual traditions, really is about identity, if you bring it right down. Finding our identity, finding out who we are, by finding out who God is first. The context and meaning that God gives to life, to reality, to our lives, to who we are, is all important here. You can't have a free-floating identity that is completely disconnected from life, creation, from God's presence, from this ultimate reality. It doesn't work that way. That's the false self. The identity that we imagine that floats free and is separated from all of this is that false self. We're trying to find out who we are. True spirituality, which is bringing us closer and closer into contact with God's presence, God's spirit, is helping us to experience and to know who this Father is of Jesus, who this God is. And by knowing who this God is, where we came from, we're starting to understand who we are. We find our identity by first meeting God and knowing something about his identity, giving us the context and the meaning for who we are. It means absolutely nothing to think about, imagine, or to state our own identity apart from this experience in God. We do it all the time, but it's meaningless. When Jesus was asked who he was, his most succinct and spot-on answer was that I and the Father are one. Notice what he's doing. His identity has meaning in the Father. I and the Father are one. Merton continues, Our vocation is not simply to be, but to work together with God in the creation of our own life, our own identity, our own destiny. You know, one time I was talking about we're actually partners with God in all of this, and I got a lot of heat for that because that sounded blasphemous. That sounded like a bridge too far. Hey, God is sovereign. God is God. How do we partner with God? That's assuming a lot. But because God has given us this ability to choose, because God has given us the ability to find our false self, our true self, our identity in him or not, then we have to partner with God. We have to be working together with God. To work out our identity in God, which the Bible calls working out our salvation. Remember that passage? Paul is talking about working out his salvation in fear and trembling. It is a labor that requires sacrifice and anguish, risks and many tears. There's the fear and trembling part. We talked about how you need to be willing to be disturbed, to move out beyond what you think you know and who you think you are. This false identity, can you move past that? Are you willing to let it go? to put it down in order to find out what's really true, that takes some chutzpah. That takes 
some fear and trembling. That takes dedication because you've got to pass through the disturbance, pass through the disorientation to get to the other side. It demands, here's the second part, close attention to reality at every moment. It demands close attention to reality at every moment and great fidelity to God as he reveals himself obscurely in the mystery of each new situation. That's the mindfulness part. There's no better way to define mindfulness than to call it close attention to reality at every moment. Paying attention to the details. What's really there? We do not know clearly beforehand what the result of this work will be. And truer words were never spoken there. You think you have an agenda. You think you have an outcome in mind. You know, what's that line? You know, God's laughing while we're making plans or something like that. You know, it's like that's the thing we think we're after. But like those links in the internet, we end up all over the place. But here's the beautiful part. No matter where we end up, God has preceded us. No matter where we end up, God is already there. If we follow the path truly, all the twists and turns that seem like they're wrong, seem like they're imperfect, will all work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All of these scriptures that bring us around to the same idea, if we're thinking this way, if we're not, it appears disjointed. But as soon as you overlay this concept, everything starts to sing the same key. The secret of my full identity is hidden in him. He alone can make me who I am, or rather, who I will be, when at last I fully begin to be. A little bit of crazy language there, but it's so hard to put this into words. So here's the next question. How will I know that I've found my real identity? Well, when you start to feel that sense of well-being, that sense of serenity, that sense of purpose and meaning again in life, when you're able to step aside from your insecurities, step aside from the fears, make decisions based on what is really indicated in the moment and not just knee-jerk programming from the past, when you can really see that little face in your hands and everything just fades to white and this is the universe at this moment, those are good indications. But then again, is it all just about feelings or is there something deeper? And here's where it gets a little tricky. See, when we think about purpose, when we think about God's will, we tend to think globally. We tend to think in the macro. We, we tend to think of our whole life from the perspective of our whole life at one, po- uh, one point in time. You know, this whole life perspective includes job, it includes career, it includes marriage, it includes our passions, it includes our causes that we may fight for. It includes hobbies. It includes everything. And so we take this whole ball of wax. We take this whole life, you know, looked at from 30,000 feet. It includes our agendas. It includes our hopes and our dreams. It includes the fears that obsessively and compulsively drive us in certain directions. And we take that whole thing. We're trying to fit it somehow into this notion of purpose or, or God's will or even destiny if we tend to think that way. This image that we hold of ourselves overall includes the roles that we play, the accomplishments that we have achieved, and the attributes that we see ourselves having as human beings. You know. But is that who we were created to be? All of those things. And others that are yet unrealized that are still on the to-do list, right? 
everything in that image of ourselves and think about yourself. How do you view yourself? Who are you? What's that combination of all those things that makes you who you think you are? One by one, those things are all going to be taken away from us as life progresses. And at the moment of death, everything is taken from us. So if these things that we value so highly that we think is our identity doesn't continue, then how valuable is it really? And if it doesn't continue, if it doesn't have the stamp of eternity, is it really God's purpose, God's will? Or is it something else? The truth is, who we imagine ourselves to be, this thought in our head, whether it's positive or negative, and there's a lot of us running around with negative self-images that keeps us back, that keeps us from fully engaging, keeps us from moving out and feeling worthy of connection, is illusion. It's just something that is arbitrary and subjective. We were just coming up with those two words a couple of days ago. It's something that we have conjured up in our minds that served a purpose, allowed us to survive, allowed us to move forward for a time, but now it's probably holding us back, or at the very least, or at the most, I suppose, it's hiding the truth, the reality of every single moment from us because we are still ensconced, we are still embedded in that illusory reality, what we think we know, what we think we believe, just because we believe it and for no other reason. I wanted to read another section from Merton because he starts talking about this false self. And maybe he can bring a little bit more clarity to us, how we get lost in this image that we have of ourselves. Also from New Seeds of Contemplation, he writes, Every one of us is shadowed by an illusory person, a false self. This is the man or woman that I want myself to be, but who cannot exist because God does not know anything about him or her. And to be unknown of God is altogether too much privacy. (laughs) Don't you love that line? To be unknown of God is altogether too much privacy. Now, obviously he's speaking figuratively here. You know, to be unknown of God in, in what he's talking about means to be out of presence to be out of relationship, to be disconnected. Remember when the people go to, uh, in, in Jesus' story, say, Lord, Lord, let us into the kingdom. And he says, wait a minute, I never knew you. That's that same thread there. I never knew you. We were never really in relationship. We never really connected. Because the false self covers over reality of the moment with an imagined reality. It cuts us off from the truth the connection that Jesus says will make us free if we simply follow who he is, completely open, vulnerable, present. Have you ever had to try have a, tried to have a conversation with someone who's drunk? <laughs> well, it's an exercise in futility. And even if you think you're having the conversation by the morning, they probably won't remember it. If you try to have some uh, conversation with someone who is drunk or who is high, they are not processing reality as you are at that moment, and you cannot break through. The words may be going back and forth. You may think that something is happening, but in reality, it's really not. We can't connect if we don't have a shared reality, if we aren't seeing the same thing. We may experience it differently, but we have to be able to be seeing the same thing and expressing it being really connected, nothing in between us. Ever had to have a uh, 
tried to have a conversation with a political junkie, especially from the other side of the aisle. Everybody's made up their mind. There's words going back and forth, but there is no connection. You know, the same thing happens in religion. Ever try to have a conversation with one of those guys that comes knocking on your door? They have an agenda. They're trying to get you to be persuaded, to think something, believe something, do something. How much real connection is there? He writes, My false and private self is the one who wants to exist outside the reach of God's will and God's love, outside of reality and outside of life, and such a self cannot help but be an illusion. Now, to be fair, there's probably not too many in us who would say that we want to live outside of God's will and outside of God's love, but we're talking consciously here. Consciously, we don't want to do that, but subconsciously, we're doing exactly that. Like Jesus said from the cross, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. We literally don't know what we're doing when we continue to stay inside the false self, making decisions based on that illusory reality. We don't know what we're doing when we stand completely outside of the sphere of God's love and God's will, which can only be apprehended, only be experienced, only be accessed in this moment right now. The fear of our past life, the fear especially of our childhood and family of origin, creates the programming in us that glues us to our false self until something strips it away. Merton writes, we are not very good at recognizing illusions, least of all the ones we cherish about ourselves. For most of the people in the world, there is no greater subjective reality than this false self of theirs, which does not even exist. A life devoted to the cult of this shadow is what is called a life of sin. It's a beautiful way to look at it. Sin is separation. To continue to live within the false self is separating you from everyone and everything around you. All sin starts from the assumption that my false self, the self that exists only in my own egocentric desires, is the fundamental reality of life to which everything else in the universe is ordered. Thus I use up my life in the desire for pleasures and the thirst for experiences, for power, honor, knowledge, love, to clothe this false self and construct its nothingness into something objectively real. And that sounds really self-serving and, and kind of Machiavellian and malicious, but it's really not. It's not that we're trying to get these things, especially at someone else's expense. It's that we can't help but make decisions that will hurt other people. If we are in this place, sin is separation. And we can never know ourselves this way. We can never know who we really are just thinking about an image, constructing an image. Because as long as we're fixated on that image, we're separated from truth, separated from each other. And in that context, our decisions are going to be harmful. They're going to hurt other people. Because other people are really not being taken into consideration, are they? The drive is to survive. The drive is to find happiness, to find the things that we think we lack. And so we just naturally flow in this life that takes us away from everything that we think that we're supposed to be doing. And we wonder why our lives aren't changing. We wonder why, with all our attention, we think on God intellectually that things aren't happening the way that they should. 
Life essentially will strip away the false self, little by little. Whether you think you're a businessman or a mother or a sports person or whatever you imagine yourself to be, those things are going to be taken away. The market will fail. Business will fail. And then who are you if you're not the businessman anymore? Children will grow up and leave home. Some of them will die. And then how are you a parent? How are you a mother then? If you think that you are a generous person, a loving person, and then you get broken in fear, then what happens when you feel it's too risky to be that person anymore? What happens when somebody dies who was so central in your life that everything is changed? When you lose the job, when you get sick, really sick, and you can't do the things that you did before, when the depression hits. Life eventually will question everything that you have built up so carefully and so meticulously. And when that happens, for that moment, if we're willing, we can see ourselves as we really are, as reality shifts out from under us. But this shifted reality sometimes scares us so badly that we want to run right back in and start building everything up again. It seems like just recently I've had several relatively elderly men, men in their early mid-70s, who were recently widowed, um, come to me and and talk about the the change in the reality and the change in their lives and how they were going to deal with all of this. And what I counseled each one of them, and none of them did it, (laughs) take a little time, you know? You're this old, you've been married for 50 years, many of them in the last 10 years of their life, they were caretakers to their wife, you know, and they have no idea who they are. They have no idea all these things that we're talking about. Everything that they think they are is based in their roles that they played and the accomplishments. And so to be able to just take some time and find out, but you know, the fear and the sense of risk drives us right back into new relationships. And it's not that that is necessarily bad, but if we don't take the time to use this moment in life that strips away a lot of the mask, a lot of the false self, to find out who we are. We've missed an opportunity, an opportunity to really find our true self that we can take into the next relationship, into the next job. Life chips away at the false self from the outside. Contemplative prayer, consciously, structurally, in a disciplined way, chips away at the false self from the inside. And the two can work together to really take us where we need to go. When we are moving in contemplative ways, when we move to mindfulness, when we move to to meditation or to centering prayer, what we're doing is we're creating moments of unforgetting. And I use that unforgetting because that's the word that the scripture writers used about communion. When Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, the word there was anamnesis, which means unforgetting. We would say remembrance, but I kind of like unforgetting. We're unforgetting who we really are. We're remembering who we really are. And in those moments of pure presence, that's exactly what's happening. You take all of that stuff, you step aside from all of those thoughts, and guess what? That's where the false self lives. You step aside from that, and you are remembering, you are unforgetting who you really are. Purely, that point that connects with God, that part that comes from God and will continue on past death and move back into God. We can do that every moment. That moment that we are 
free to remember and be who we really are to glorify God in that moment. Remember after Saul had his Damascus experience and he's in Damascus now and at a certain point something like scales fall from his eyes. That's the image. The scales fall from our eyes in this moment whether it's coming from the inside out or the outside in suddenly the scales fall away and we see a reality that we hadn't seen before. And we can see clearly. And all the followers of Jesus experiencing the risen Lord had those scales on their eyes too. They were caught in this false self. The image of who they thought they were. Who they thought they were with Jesus. Where they thought they were going. The agenda. All of that. The crucifixion didn't fit with that scenario. It tweaked them. And Jesus coming back and visiting them again certainly tweaked them. And so none of them recognized him at first. I wanted to read just this little passage about the Emmaus Road from Luke 24. And you can look at your bulletins or up on the screens. And behold, two of them, two of Jesus' followers, this is after the crucifixion, were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas said, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things that have happened here in these days? And he, Jesus, said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, in the sight of God and all the people. And as they continue to walk, they're having this discussion with him about the scripture and about all these things. And then as they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going farther, but they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it's getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them, and when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them, and then their eyes were open, and they recognized him. And so this whole time on the road, and moving into the city, and reclining at table, and having their meal, was more and more of this practice of presence, more and more of this moving into a completely mindful state with Jesus. And then at the moment that he breaks the bread, the anamnesis hits, the unforgetting, the scales fall from their eyes and they see and they recognize. This is the process. This is how we can work as well. This is the radical shift that the contemplative life can bring to us. Living as God intended. His will can't be imagined. You know? You can't just think about it. You can't say, here it is. You know? Here's the whole thing. Apart from the experience of unforgetting in each moment, this experience of oneness and connection, whatever you think of your purpose, identity, your, your plan, means absolutely nothing. Except or until you see that special needs child in front of you you see what is really in and you realize this is a perfectly perfect moment. You know, I don't know if I can get this across. It's, it's one of those things, but it's been this major shift for me to realize that all my purpose as I imagine it, as I project it, and the outcomes that I look for mean nothing. 
all the purpose I will ever have, all the purpose that there will ever be, all the experience of God's will that I can ever experience is just going to be right here, right now, in the most seemingly insignificant of moments. But if I can't find it here, I will never find it out there. If I can't connect with God, spirit to spirit, person to person, in a way that fundamentally alters my perception, nothing else is going to do it. It's not possible. To move into these moments, to feel and see them deeply, to walk away with clear memories, to know so intimately I was there. That's something that changes the way that we live. One last bit from Merton. He writes, The forms and individual characters of living and growing things, of inanimate beings, of animals and flowers and all nature, constitute their holiness in the sight of God. The special clumsy beauty of this particular cult on this April day, in this field, under these clouds, is a holiness consecrated to God by his own creative wisdom, and it declares the glory of God. Do you see how this works? It's this particular cult, in this field, on this April day, under these clouds. Merton was there. He was there so deeply that when he writes about this later, everything, he closes his eyes, he sees the whole scene. This cult, this field, these clouds. That connection, that specificity, that focus brought him into the reality of a sacred moment. His openness to the will and the presence of God. He continues, The pale flowers of the dogwood outside this window are saints. The little flower, the the little yellow flowers that nobody notices on the edge of the road are saints looking up into the face of God. This leaf has its own texture and its own patter of veins and its own holy shape. And the the bass and the trout hiding in the deep pools of the river are canonized by their beauty and their strength. The lakes hidden from the hills are saints. And the sea, too, is a saint who praises God without interruption in her majestic dance. The great gashed half-naked mountain is another of God's saints. There is no other like him. He is alone in his own character. Nothing else in the world ever did or ever will imitate God in quite the same way. This is his sanctity. All these moments, all these small, insignificant moments, or so they seem, remind us of who we are in Christ, in God, in creation. On our own, disconnected from all this, actually cease to exist, except in our own minds, separated in sin. But you know, it's not the moment itself that saves us from this sin. It's our participation in the moment, seeing the perfection of our living God in the moment, the risen Christ in the moment, that is the unforgetting, the remembering of who we really are, who we came from, and where we're going. Just cultivate these moments. Gather these moments. It's not a big ball of wax out there someplace. 
It's creating just this string of pearls of all these moments. Perfectly perfect presence, connection that remind us who we really are. And I hope this will intrigue you enough to begin the process. Start questioning your consciousness. Where are you right now? And when you walk out that door, where are you then? When you're talking to someone, when you're on the phone, when you're doing all the things that you do, you don't need to spend any extra time. Just bring yourself home. Bring yourself back. Notice the colt in that field under these clouds on this April day. Be there. Walk away with a memory that clear, that crisp, and things will change in your life in ways that you can't even imagine or expect the outcome of right now, today. It's foundational. It's profound. Because it's God. Let's pray. Father, you are so amazing. It is almost impossible not to take you for granted because the extent of who you are, the extent of your love, the extent of your presence is something that we just cannot get our minds around. Help us to stop trying. Help us to stop trying to figure things out. Help us just to be, to stand by the conveyor belt and just let the moments bring things into our path and out again and just be present to them as they're right in front of us. Feel deeply. See what is really there. Stop clinging to things in our heads so that your spirit can blow us wherever you want to blow us. That's our prayer, Father. We know it'll be difficult and we know that we'll resist But keep in our hearts a flame alive of the possibility of a relationship without fear. And that will be enough. Thank you for loving us the way that you do, Father. We can only love because you loved us first in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.